Hi, I'm Pastor Kaylee. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Wood Street Chapel in Fortuna, California. You can find out more information about our church at www.woodstreetchapel.org. You know, I've, I've talked before how sometimes as a pastor when it comes to holidays, I mean, original material starts getting a little tricky. I mean, you can only talk about shepherds and wise men and Mary and Joseph for so long. And then all of a sudden it's just like, man, there is nothing new. <laughs> Sometimes you get super creative and you're like, we're going we're gonna to go to the innkeeper this year and, and we're going to talk about, <laughs> or, you know, that other person that you, you finally find reference to. And so this, this month I, I'm thankful that we're kind of going, taking this series in another direction where we're, we're looking at the family tree of Jesus. Um, when we stop and look at things that are in the Bible that, that maybe we've, we've just glanced over, maybe we ha- have, have skipped it because it's uncomfortable Maybe we've skipped it because in the case of Matthew 1, you can't pronounce the names. Um, maybe maybe there's, there's another reason, but there, there's just something about being able to look at things in a, a, with a pre- fresh perspective. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the life of a woman that, that we don't typically like to look at. We're going to be looking at the life of a woman that, and her experience that's documented in the Word of God in the book of Genesis chapter 38 is uncomfortable. If this was an experience in our life, I kind of talked about it last week, if this was an experience that happened in, in our life, we'd, we'd rather just kind of put some wallpaper over it and say, well, we can come back to that later. <laughs> or maybe if we just never come back to it at all, that'd be fine too. The, the woman that we're going to be looking at this morning, that we're going to, to try to understand just a little bit better, is, is named Tamar. And her story is told in the, the book of Genesis chapter 38. And before we, we go that, go, go to that point, we need to kind of take one generational step back. We, we know the story of Joseph, right? And, and we know that the, the family of Joseph was kind of messed up. We know that, that his, his father, Joseph's father, had a, a bad habit of favoritism. That favoritism then led to the rest of the brothers actually throwing Joseph in a pit and selling him as a slave. That's not a healthy family dynamic. Some of, maybe some people with siblings are like, I, I could relate, you know, maybe. <laughs> but that's a problem. That's not good. And so directly on the, the heels of this behavior comes what we see in chapter 38. So there, there, there's never any significant unity amongst the, the sons of Israel and the selling of Joseph is just kind of the first indication of that. But now after that event, Judah says, you know, I'm, I'm going to go out on my own for a little bit. And he decides to leave his brothers. He leaves his, his father 
for the, the grass that's, that's greener with the Canaanites. Now, that and right there is a problem. The, the Canaanites were not a group that, that the Israelites were supposed to be uh, friends with. They were not a group that the Israelites were supposed to create a family with. They weren't a group that they were supposed to have life with because they were an influence that Jesus had, or that God had specifically said was not to be around them. But Judah makes the choice to go and to live amongst them. And his, his troubles kind of begin with this man named Hira, H-I-R-A-H. And he's an Adulamite. Hira was a close friend to Judah, but he was also not a good friend. He was a bad influence. And whenever we see Hira show up in the life of Judah, we see Judah making bad choices. Maybe you guys can kind of think about what, what that looks like in your life. Are, do you, are there those people that show up and it's like, you need to just go away? <laughs> Judah has, has chosen to step away from his family. He's chosen to ch- step away from uh, the, the people that he knows. And now he's friends with this, this person who is, is making him, leading him into choices that are, are just not healthy, not appropriate. And so while he's with Hira, while Judah is with Hira, he sees a Canaanite woman. We don't even get her name. Just that he sees this woman and the fact that the stress is placed on the fact that Judah sees this woman, we can probably say that she's probably pretty beautiful. And I bet that's about as far as Judah took it. It This is a a beautiful woman and so he chose to to make her his wife. Outward appearance was really the the only focus of this relationship is, is probably what we can guess here. And from this union with a Canaanite woman who God had already said was not, they weren't a group they were supposed to be marrying into, three sons are born. From Judah, we we have the first son, Er, (laughs) E-R, Onan, and Shelah. These three sons. The the first son, Er, Judah goes out and he finds this woman named Tamar in the land of Canaan. And he acquires her to be the wife of Ur. And so we know that Tamar is a Canaanite. But what we also know is that if we read chapter 38, if you kind of glance through it when we're done here, you'll see that Ur was so evil that God killed him. That he made so many poor choices that he chose to step away so far away from the God of his fathers that he was actually killed. And so the, the way the, the custom worked back then because it was so important that there be a firstborn that there would be an heir to the family, what would happen is if the the firstborn son died, then it was the responsibility of the next son in line to provide an heir through that woman. And so Tamar is, is handed off 
to the, the second son of Judah, Onan. And Onan is, is so upset about the fact that he wasn't going to be firstborn, that he was now being responsible for creating a firstborn for Ur, that he chose to neglect that responsibility. And Onan is also doing evil on the side of the Lord, and, and God kills him as well. And Judah, looking at the, the way things are transpiring, says, man, I don't think I really want to put my third kid up since this doesn't seem to be working out so well. And so he instead decides to neglect not his responsibility to his sons, but his responsibility to his daughter-in-law and tells his daughter-in-law, you have been used, essentially. It didn't work out. I just need you to go back to your father. And on the surface, that doesn't seem like a big deal to us in this age, but it's important to understand what that meant in that time. After a woman has been with a man, she wasn't allowed to just make her own choice and go do whatever she wanted to do. She was basically forced to wait until Judah decided that this third son would be available for marriage. And she wasn't to go and pick somebody else. She didn't get to fall in love with somebody. She, there was no storybook ending for her. There was the only options for her were suicide, which honestly her parents probably were hoping she would do rather than deal with the added cost of having a woman at home that wasn't producing anything. The option of potentially someday Judah deciding that this thirdborn would be available for her. Or the, the final option would be that she would just grow old in her parents' home as a burden not being the only thing that was ever available for her. And in the middle of this situation, in the middle of that hardship, that nastiness, Tamar begins to wonder, is this really all there is? Is this what my life is going to come to. There is so much promise. There is so much hope. And, and every girl has, has dreams for a future, right? I mean, not just a girl. Every person has hopes and dreams for a future. You, you talk to a child, what are you going to be when you grow up? I'm going to be an astronaut. I'm going to be a firefighter. They, they have plans. Tamar had plans. We don't know what those are, but we know because she's a human being that there were plans. And you can just picture Tamar crying out, was this really the best that was in store for me? Don't you see me? We don't know if she's following the God of her father's Judah at that point, if she really even has a relationship with God, but we can, we can 
surmise that at least she's aware. And, and I can picture her crying out to God, God, what about me? Do you ever cry out to God, what about me? What about the things that, that you promised in my life? What about the things that, that are, are due to me? And it's when we, we get to that point of waiting that we start to feel that maybe we need to take matters into our own hands. One thing that is super important for us to point out as we, we look at this story, as we look at this life, it is so easy to look at the next choice that's being made here and to say, well, that was wrong. You shouldn't have done that. And throughout the entire time that I was reading this chapter, my head just kept going back to Abraham. It kept going back to Abraham who was made a promise. He was made a promise that he would be the father of many nations, right? And he was old. And Sarah was old. And Abraham is, is having that same conversation with God. What about me? What about the promises that you said that I would be the father of many nations? This isn't working. And Abraham took matters into his own hands. Abraham makes the choice to go and sleep with his wife's servant and to have a child with her instead. And you, you just see God what are you doing? He probably does that with me a lot. <laughs> what are you doing? And, and this right here is a very similar incident where we see this next choice that Tamar makes and, and God's in heaven. What are you doing? No. So after this time of being closeted away, conveniently forgotten by Judah. Judah's wife dies. The Canaanite wife dies. And Tamar says, this is my chance. So Judah and, and the rest of his, the males in his household are, are going out. They have just finished shearing sheep you can kind of imagine after a day's hard work, everybody's kind of ready to go get boozed up. And so they come back, they've got wine and, and Tamar says, decides to, to dress up as a prostitute. Knowing that all she has to do is, is present herself to Judah and, and that's how she will produce an heir. So she, she dresses as a prostitute and, and in that time and in that culture, they would have to cover their face. And so Judah didn't know who he was propositioning, who he was getting into a contract with. And so as part of this contract, because let's face it, it's hard to force somebody to pay after the fact, Tamar says, I need you to give me something. 
I need you to give me the, the seal of your family, the, the seal that they would use to, to bind themselves in a contract. And I need you to give me your staff. And both of these things were very, very specific to Judah, to no one else. So Judah and Tamar, they, they go off and do what you would expect. Some time passes and Tamar does in fact become pregnant. And in the, the time in between, Judah sends a, a boy over to go back and collect his seal and his staff from the prostitute that he just slept with. And the boy says, I can't find her. She, there's, there's nobody there. And so Judah says, oh, it's the prostitute that's at the city gate. And the, the boy comes back and says, none of the, and it's very specific in terms of the wording. It says, none of the temple prostitutes were at the city gate. And it's important to recognize this wasn't just Judah having sex with a, a prostitute. This was Judah worshiping a Canaanite god through prostitution. I mean, it, it just kind of keeps going downhill. And, and so the, the boy comes back. I can't, there, there was nobody there. I couldn't, couldn't find her. And, and Judah at this point is like, well, this is embarrassing. And so rather than deal with trying to get that stuff out, he's like, well, I'll just make another one. And so he decides to just get a different seal, get, get a different staff, and, and we'll just count those for lost, and, and we'll never talk about this again. What happens in Jerusalem stays in Jerusalem or whatever. Um, until it's discovered that Tamar's pregnant. Now, Tamar, she was supposed to be locked away. She didn't get to have any control over who she was, who she had a relationship with, and it was already mandated that she wasn't going to have a relationship with this third son of Judah. And as soon as the information is shared that Tamar is pregnant, what is Judah's response? Burner. That wasn't even the, the prescribed punishment for adultery. The prescribed punishment for adultery was to be stoned. But in specific cases where the sin was, was egregious is when they would be burned. Judah, with, without a second thought, says, burner. And if you're Tamar, you start screaming from the rooftops, I know what you did. <laughs> but that's not what she does. She very calmly, according to the scripture, asks to speak to Judah. She says, the, the man who owns these things is the father of this child. And Judah says, whoops. I 
the man who, who owns this seal, who owns this staff, is the father of this child. There's no, no way to duplicate something like that. It's, that's basically incontrovertible proof that Judah is the father of these children. What a shock. It never once occurred to him when he was, was so quick to pass blame and judgment onto Tamar that he was the guilty party that he was the one who really should be suffering the penalty that he had just pronounced on Tamar. And so what does he say? Or what what does Judah say of Tamar? He says, she is more righteous than I am. In that she acted to provide a son that was hers while Judah refused to make that an option. And so over time, we see Judah does return back to his family. And it it came time for Tamar to give birth and it turns out she was pregnant with twins. And it's important when there's twins to figure out who comes out first because that's the firstborn. And so in this particular case, one of the, the babies has a, a hand that is out but isn't completely born yet. And so the, the nurse or the midwife ties a string around that hand, but then it turns out that he pulls his hand back in and the other twin is born first instead. And so he's named Perez. And in the, the closing paragraph of the chapter, we, we see this, this birth that comes about from Judah, from Tamar. And we see Perez, who becomes the, the forefather of Boaz, who becomes the forefather of, of David, who becomes the forefather of Jesus. And we see Tamar, not whitewashed out of the picture with a a hope that she'll be forgotten, but instead she's called out and she is publicly acknowledged. Why? Scandalous sin needs incredible grace. And normally we, we think that if we were looking at the family tree of Jesus, it's easy to think that there needs to be a, a, an effort put into to being able to make the team in order to, to get that position, that there needs to be some level of, of conduct that is, is put forth in order to, to be listed here. 
What we see in this family tree is a firstborn that was so bad that he was killed by God, a secondborn who was so bad that he was killed by God, a father-in-law so callous that he tossed away the protection that he should have been providing to his daughter-in-law, a man who frequents prostitutes, and a young widow who is so desperate to have a life in the world that she plays the prostitute. What kind of, the only type of response to this scandalous situation is enormous grace. Historically, this this chapter had so much to teach the Israelite people. It is no wonder that with this type of thing happening in the the children of Israel, that God was like, we got to fix this. And he brings about their internment in Egypt. They were so messed up that they needed to spend time under the rule of the Egyptians who, who they would not even look at the Israelites. Like, these people were dirty. They, they were viewed as unclean. They were viewed as, like, even if an Israelite wanted to have some type of relationship with an Egyptian, the Egyptians would be like, forget it. And so there, there had to be a time of, of recognizing that you are a, a chosen people, a people that is set apart. No Israelite could look at this genealogy, this list of names, without a sense of humility without looking at this and recognizing, man, the the roots of this family tree are rotten. There is no no way to look back at at this behavior and say, look at what what I have in, in my background. Instead, they had to acknowledge that whatever good came out of this situation came from grace and grace alone. As far as Judah was concerned, his promise to Tamar had been forgotten. It, was, it wasn't something that he was going to be responsible for, but Tamar refused to be forgotten. Was that what God wanted for Tamar in her life? No. But does God allow our choices? Does God allow the decisions, the the dumb things we do to derail his plans? No. And to be clear, I'm not just talking about the choices that Tamar's making. I'm talking about the choices that Judah made, the the choices that were, were made by everyone in this situation. While Judah chose to neglect his responsibility to provide a male heir, 
that didn't stop God from accomplishing what, what he was going to accomplish. So, we may be shocked when we look through the, the genealogy of Jesus and we see Judah and we see Tamar listed. But we can't question the ways of God. Maybe it was just a matter of heritage, the fact that, that Judah was a Jew and that Tamar was a Gentile. That was, that was significant so that Jesus came from a, the line of, of Gentiles as well as the line of Jews. That was important. There is the promise that was made from Micah 5.2 where Tamar's son fulfills the promise that though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over all of Israel. I mean, it, it feels almost wrong to say that this is part of the Christmas story. You know, we're, we're so used to the Christmas story being about the shepherds, being about the angels proclaiming the, the birth of the Messiah. We're used to the, the stories of Mary and Joseph going out of the, the town of Nazareth to the town of Bethlehem to be counted. In those days, Caesar Augustus, we're used to those things. We're not used to talking about the brokenness of Tamar and Judah. We're not used to talking about prostitution in the middle of the Christmas story. We're not used to talking about sinful behavior in the the patriarchs of Israel. We're not used to talking about the, the brokenness is the lack of, of respect for the female body, for the female as a person in the Christmas story. And yet it's, it's here. And it's here because it's that story of grace. That story that, that reminds us that our poor decisions don't derail God. That this was, in fact, why he came. This is why he needed to come. Because if we're left to our own devices, these are the types of choices that we make. These are the, the, the decisions that come from a heart and a life of sin. But God is a God of grace. He says, I'm not going to allow you to be stuck where you are. I love you too much to allow your choices to, to strand you here. And so I will rescue you. So in this brokenness, we see this message of grace. Heavenly Father, we thank you for grace. Grace undeserved that started in the Garden of Eden, 
And that, that first broken choice that was made, even that choice didn't derail your plans. And every bad choice, every sin-influenced choice going forward did not derail your plans. You are bigger than sin. You are greater than death. You are greater than the grave. And not only did you say, I will redeem this situation. I will redeem this life. I will redeem the life of Judah. I will redeem the life of Tamar. But I will also redeem the life of every person who chooses me going forward. Not just by coming and and living a sinless life, but also by dying a death on a cross. By shedding my perfect blood to make a payment. A payment that could never be paid in any other way. Because I am a God of grace. God, as we, we look back at, at our own choices and our own decisions, so often we disqualify ourselves based on the life that we've led, based off of the choices that we have made. God, we see here today that we cannot disqualify ourselves. Instead, we can, we can come to you and we can say, come and see what God has done. Come and see how God has changed me, how God has rescued me. God, we give everything to you because of who you are, because of what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like more information about Wood Street Chapel, check out our website, woodstreetchapel.org, or email us, info at woodstreetchapel.org. Connect with us on Facebook to stay in the loop. 